Whether to climb a mountain or read a good book, why not both? Climb a mountain and read a good book at the top of the mountain. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Mill City Church. As we get, begin our time together this morning, would you join me and let's pray. Let's commit uh, this time to the Lord. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are our guide, that you are our wisdom. Jesus, we thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet. And so, Holy Spirit, as we go into this time together, would you guide us closer to you? Would you draw us into your love and remind us of the hope we have? Lord, we love you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, speaking of books, I think that there are three groups of people when it comes to reading books. The first group of people reads a book from start to finish. They are the people that when they grab a book, they are not going to put it down till it's done. They just have to find out what is next. The second group of people starts reading a book, and they maybe get a few chapters in, but then they put the book down and they realize, you know, watching the movie is going to be way better. <laughs> I have to confess, I was in the second group. I did this for Pride and Prejudice. And then when I got married, I found out that I had watched the wrong movie. <laughs> Apparently, the Kira Knightley two-and-a-half-hour version isn't as close to the books as it could be. And Anna rectified this by making me watch the six-hour version of Pride and Prejudice. Now, now I have to say that after watching the six-hour version, I am team six-hour Pride and Prejudice. It was really, really fun. So you have that first group, and then you have the second group. But in middle school and high school, I found myself frequently in a third group of people. See, what I would do is I needed certainty in my life, and so I would open the book, and I would find out the main characters, and then I would pause and turn to the end of the book, read how the story ended, and then I would turn back, and then I would read through the rest of the book. I know some of you are heartbroken, especially if you're in that first group of book readers. But I needed confidence. I needed to know how the story would end. I needed something to hold on to as I walked through the middle portion of the book, through the ups and the downs, through the twists and the turns of the story. I needed some hope to hold on to. Now, it's not a perfect analogy, but I believe that being a Jesus follower is like living in this third group. As followers of Jesus, we know the ending. We know that one day Jesus will return and make all things new. We have this future hope, but right now we live in the middle pages of this story. We live in this in-between time where the kingdom of God is here, but we also know that the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. There is still restoration, there is still healing that we are waiting for when Jesus returns. So we live in this middle section of the story, and living in the middle section of the story can be tough. In this world, as we follow Jesus or seek God's kingdom, we'll experience tension with the values of the culture around us. The Apostle Peter refers to this when he talks about how this makes us exiles or strangers in this world. Exile being a place where we experience the tension of the kingdom being here but not yet. The tension where the kingdom values are not lining up with the environment we're in. For example, we might experience exile when we are trying to live as people of peace but we're faced with the violence and anger and brokenness around us. 
We might experience exile when we're trying to walk in honesty in cultures that just assume that dishonesty is a part of life. We might experience exile when we're trying to walk justly and love mercy, but that seems like an uphill battle or where we're trying to live with the self-sacrificial love of Jesus, but that is counter-cultural. You could even feel exile when you encounter grief and brokenness and know that this is not how the world is supposed to be. Are there areas where you feel this tension of where the kingdom values don't line up with the values around you? Where you're experiencing brokenness and you know that this is not where it's supposed to be? Are there places where you feel this tension of exile? Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your school. Maybe it's your neighborhood or even your family. And I want to acknowledge for some of you, it might even be the church. As you look at the people around you, as you go through church and you say, well, you people claim to be Jesus followers, but what I read in this book doesn't really line up with what I'm seeing. These places of exile can be alienating and isolating. Is there a place where you feel or have felt this deep exile? Now, part of being a Jesus follower and seeking God's kingdom means that we will experience places of exile till Jesus returns. So how do we navigate these spaces of exile? Well, we're beginning a new series in Daniel that talks about a group of young leaders that had to figure this out in a literal physical exile. They were taken from their home and placed in another country. And even though there are moments where they feel alone, what the book of Daniel reminds us about is that in the midst of exile, we have hope because God is with us and that hope inspires faithfulness. That's actually our big idea this morning, that in the midst of exile, we have hope because God is with us, and that hope inspires faithfulness. So this morning, we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn there with me. Otherwise, the passage will be on the screen as well. Now, when you think of the book of Daniel, there might be a couple stories that come to mind. You might think of Daniel in the lion's den, how Daniel was thrown into the lion's den because of what he believed. But the Lord sent an angel and shut the mouths of the lions and rescued Daniel. Or you might think of the story of three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you grew up on VeggieTales, Rakshak and Benny. <laughs> you might think of their story about how they went into a fiery furnace but they trusted God and God protected them and rescued them from that place. But what we'll see about the book of Daniel is while Daniel and his friends are major characters in the story, like any story in the Bible, this book is about God. How even in the midst of exile, God is with his people and how that hope inspires their actions. So we're going to begin with Daniel 1. Now, just some context about Daniel 1 is Daniel 1 actually happens around 600 years before Jesus was born when Babylon was the major world empire at that time. And in chapter 1, we'll read about a king called Nebuchadnezzar. And this king of Babylon besieged Jerusalem and in the beginning of this chapter actually takes some people into exile. Now, each king in the ancient Near East had a different strategy for conquering people. And this was Nebuchadnezzar's strategy. He would take the best the brightest, the most passionate leaders into exile and trained them in the values and culture of Babylon. These were the cream of the crop of Israel and train, training them to serve Babylon would only make Babylon stronger while weakening Israel. So with this in mind, we pick up the story in verse 3. So verse 3 says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, 
to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So just to pause for a second, Daniel and his friends are taken into exile. These were young men. In fact, some scholars think that these were teenagers. They were taken far from home and put in the culture of Babylon, a culture where they knew it was going to be tough to follow the one true God. But what we'll see throughout Daniel is that Daniel's hope in God remains steadfast. And this hope leads him to respond in faithfulness. And this begins even as a teenager. So we continue the story in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any other young man your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food, the wine they were to drink, and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Crazy story. So what is actually happening in this story? Well, because Daniel is first and foremost a story about God, the first question we have to ask is, what does this passage reveal about who God is? See, Daniel and his friends had just been taken into exile. Their identity had been shaken. Their security was rattled. They probably felt alone and isolated. They probably were wondering, where is God in this exile? Is that a question that you've ever asked? Where is God in the midst of this exile? I know I've asked that question. But what this passage reminds us and what this passage reveals about God is that even in the midst of exile, we have hope because God is with us. So let's dive in and see how that plays out. See, God did not send the people of Israel into exile and say, come back when you have everything figured out. No, in love, God does the unimaginable. The books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, we read that the God of heavens does not abandon his people but God actually goes with his people into exile. God is with Daniel and his friends as they navigate this unfamiliar space. And we see that God is with them in three ways. The first way that we see God is present is the way that God works behind the scenes. We see this in verse 8 and 9. 
We sing the song, even when I don't see it, you're working. And this is what Daniel sees God doing. See, Daniel's request could have gotten him killed. But God provides Daniel and his friends favor in the eyes of the Babylonian official. And when the chief official seems a little tentative, God then works by having the Babylonian guard show favor to these four teenagers. They had no business earning the guard's favor, but God works behind the scene and invites the guard to show favor to these four young men. So God is present in the way that God works behind the scenes. Second, we see that God is present in the way that God sustains Daniel and his friends. Now, some scholars think that the food that the king offered Daniel, this royal food, was actually bread made from the finest wheat. It was rich food. To get a picture of this, I would imagine the Great British Baking Show 2.0. That is what these men were given to eat. See, the wise men in Babylon were supposed to look well-fed and nourished, and this royal food would help them look the part. Now is not the time for Daniel to go on a diet. But Daniel chooses to eat vegetables and drink water. He says, this is how I'm going to respond in faith. And what happens next? In verse 15, we read that after the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. See, God shows he is present in the way that God sustains Daniel and his friends. A literal translation of this verse is that they looked good and fat of flesh. That's what Daniel and his friends looked like after these 10 days. Though maybe not as awe-inspiring as shutting the mouths of lions or rescuing people from a fiery furnace, God's presence is seen in the way that God miraculously sustains these four men, taking their diet of vegetables and water and presenting them as well-nourished, even more nourished than the people around them who were eating the royal food. So God shows he is present in the way that God works behind the scenes in this story. God shows he is present in the way that God sustains Daniel and his friends, and finally, God shows he is present by equipping Daniel and his friends to serve in this place of exile. Verse 17 says, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Now, as we read through Daniel, we'll read that the exile didn't really end for Daniel and his friends. In fact, they probably spent most, if not all, their lives living in exile. But God was with Daniel, and God shows this by equipping Daniel and his friends to not only survive, but thrive in this place of exile, thrive in Babylon. The rest of the chapter goes on to say that when the king finally meets Daniel, Daniel shows himself to be ten times better than all the other magicians in the land. In the midst of exile, we have hope because God is with us. This is the first thing we can draw from this passage. Now, the second question we have to ask is, what does this passage teach us about Daniel? What can we learn from the way that Daniel carried himself in this exile? Now, when I think about Daniel, I think that Daniel probably had three options. One, Daniel could assimilate with the Babylonian culture. He could just follow the values. He could just go with the flow, and no one would have blamed him. Another option is Daniel could have refused. He could say, I'm not taking part in this three-year program. I'm not going to serve Babylon. They're the ones who took us away from home. I'm not going to do it. But Daniel chooses a third response, which the prophet Jeremiah talks about in the book of Jeremiah. Now, Daniel quotes the prophet Jeremiah later in the book, but what we read in Jeremiah 29 is that Jeremiah explains how God invited the exiles to respond during their time in Babylon. In this exile, God wanted the people to seek the peace and prosperity of the city while remaining faithful to God. 
in a place where their values would clash, or they would be in tension with the culture around them, God invited the people to love their neighbor and faithfully represent God to those around them. And that's what Daniel does in verse 8. Daniel continues in this three-year program, but his hope in God inspired a faithful response. Daniel resolved not to eat the food. Now, this was not about vegetables being better, and the application from the sermon is not to go on any Daniel diet. When Daniel resolves to not eat the food, that reveals something deeper that we might miss at first glance. Now, when you look at the context of your story, you'll find that the reason that the king offered the food to the exiles was to show the world that when these men succeeded, and they would, when these men succeeded, it was going to be because the king had sustained them. The king was the one who gave them the food. The king was the one who brought them to that place. But what Daniel does is really interesting here. Daniel's step of faith would tell a different story. If God sustained them, it was an indication to him and his four friends that God was the reason for their success, not the king. This was a way that they could seek the prosperity of the city and officially represent, uh, and faithfully represent God to those around them. In this case, the chief official and the guard who witnessed this test. This was a risk, and there was a chance that this would not work out the way that Daniel wanted. But just like Daniel's hope in God inspires his actions through the rest of the book, I believe that Daniel's hope in God inspired him to walk in faithfulness even at the beginning of the exile, to trust that God was the one who was with him and that God would sustain him. So in the midst of exile, God is with us, and this hope inspires faithfulness. So how do we apply this passage this week? Now, we might not be in a literal Babylon, but as Jesus followers, we need to accept the reality that we will find ourselves in places of exile. Places where following Jesus and seeking God's kingdom will be in tension with the values or the people around us. And these places of exile can be isolating. You can feel alienated from those around you. These places of exile can be defined by hopelessness and exhaustion. And while we know how the story will end, we know that right now we are stuck in the middle and living here can be tough. But Daniel reminds us that in this present experience, while we live in the middle of the kingdom being here, but not fully yet, we have hope because God is with us and this hope inspires faithfulness. So when it comes to applying this passage this morning, there are just two questions that I want to offer that we can reflect on. And you can write these questions down or, or put them in your phone. So the first question is this. What is one way you can remember and hold on to the reality that God is with you? What is one way you can remember and hold on to the reality that God is with you? In times of exile, it can be really easy to lose hope or try to find hope in something temporary like our own strength. Yet in this present experience, we have this hope that in the midst of the brokenness, God is with us. In the midst of exile, God will be with us. This hope reminds us that God works behind the scenes. This hope reminds us that God will sustain us, that God will equip us for what we need, that we can look to God for wisdom as we navigate these spaces. So what is one way that you can remember and hold on to this reality? Now, there are different rhythms in life that can help us practice the presence of God. Or, another way to put it, there are different rhythms that can help remind us of the reality that God is with us. Now, one of the rhythms Daniel uses a lot throughout the book is prayer. We find out in chapter 6 that this was a habit for Daniel. Three times a day, throughout his workday, he would remind himself of the presence of God. 
So what would it look like for you to maybe practice this rhythm of prayer as you head into some of these exilic spaces? What would it look like to practice the rhythm of prayer as you are navigating through these spaces of exile? Now, it doesn't have to be a long prayer. It could be a simple prayer like, Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, guide my steps. Lord, would you make me aware of your presence? It could be a short prayer like, Lord, please help. But what we know and what Scripture tells us is we have a God who not only hears, but a God who answers prayer. And so prayer is a way that we can practice the presence of God, that we can remind ourselves of the reality that God is with us. Another rhythm that you could use is a rhythm that I've actually been using these past two weeks. Uh, This rhythm was a new practice for me, but I chose the practice of memorization. And so what I did was I took Psalm chapter 27. The psalm has been dear to me, and it's a psalm that I love. And so I decided, you know what? For the next two weeks, I'm going to spend five minutes each morning trying to memorize different portions of this psalm. Now, when I started this experience, I didn't know how much I would need this practice of memorization this week. See, this week, there were moments where I felt isolated. There were moments where I felt exhausted as I just looked at the amount of brokenness that was in this world. As I looked at the news and daily, there is something to grieve. I felt times where I was overwhelmed. I felt times when fear and anxiety began to attack me. I needed to know that God was with me. And memorization helped that. In times where I needed to remember that God was with me, that God was present, I began to call to mind, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I remembered when I saw brokenness, what the psalmist says, that I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Memorization was a rhythm that helped me practice the presence of God. So maybe this week, what would it look like to maybe pick a verse or two to memorize and dwell on as you navigate these spaces of exile? Maybe for some, if you don't know where to begin, Psalm 23 is a great place to begin. In places where you need to remind yourself of God's presence to remember that even in the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because God is with me. Prayer, memorization can be these rhythms. And there are so many other rhythms. We can talk about reading scripture, about singing, about gathering together. Even the practice of communion is a practice of remembering the reality that God is with us. So what is one way this week that you can remember the reality and hold on to that reality? that God is with you. Secondly, what is one way you can walk in faithfulness because of this reality? What is one way you can walk in faithfulness because of this reality? Because of his confidence in in, in God, Daniel chooses to walk in faithfulness during exile. Now, Daniel could have just gone with the flow. He could have done nothing, but Daniel chooses to take a risk inspired by his hope. He resolved not to eat the food, and that resolve pointed to who God was. So as you think through places where you experience exile, where the kingdom values are in tension with the people or the cultures around you, is there a way that God is inviting you to walk in faithfulness because of the reality that God is with you? As I was thinking through this, there were a couple examples that came to mind. Maybe you feel like you're in exile in school. And maybe a way to walk in faithfulness, what if that looked like standing up for those who are mistreated or bullied? It might be a risk. It might put you at odds with your friend group. But that is a way that you can tangibly show God with us by actually being with that person. What if that is a step of faith? I know for many of us, sometimes we feel like an exile in our workplaces. 
What if a way to walk in faithfulness involved putting people first in a culture that is often dominated by deadlines and performance? I was talking with a manager recently, and he was talking about how following Jesus, what that meant for him was creating a culture where people felt valued and cared for, creating a, a culture where his employees knew that he cared about their life, that they were people first. Maybe that is a way to walk in faithfulness. Maybe it's looking like walking with honesty in a culture where dishonesty is a gray area. Recently, I saw a video about a dad confronting his daughter about eating a candy bar. And he looked at the daughter and said, did you eat the Snickers bar? And the daughter said, no, I didn't eat that. And the dad said, are you lying or are you telling the truth? And the daughter looked at him and said, I'm telling the happy truth. <laughs> I, I, I would not have been able to keep a straight face. <laughs> The happy truth won't get me in trouble. Is there a place where you are in a culture, you feel like you're in exile because it is a culture of telling the happy truth? A culture where it says, oh, just fudge the numbers, do whatever it takes to meet the bottom line. Is that a place where living out in faithfulness means walking in honesty, walking in the whole truth? What about your neighborhood? I know one of the ways that as a community we have tried to walk in faithfulness is advocate for people being in our backyard instead of following a culture that says, no, people need to be out of our backyard. And some of you are actually exploring putting up homes in your backyard to do this. This is a step of faith. This is a huge risk. But you feel God inviting you to join him in that work, and you're taking a step of faith in doing that. Now, in all these spaces, maybe walking in faithfulness is using your influence to advocate for those who are often marginalized or ignored. At Mill City, we have a lot of leaders. We have a lot of people of influence in our community. So is there a way that God is inviting us to use that influence in places where we feel like we're in exile to advocate for those who need to be heard, to walk with grace, to walk with empathy, to walk and pursue justice? Is there a way that God is inviting us to walk in faithfulness in these spaces? Now, I know that many of you are already doing this. And so by me asking this question, this is just a reminder to say, keep going. God invites us to keep going till he returns and restores all things. And we get to go knowing that God is with us and that this hope gives us strength. And this hope inspires faithfulness. So what is one way you can hold on to this reality? And what is one way that you can walk in faith? because of this reality. Now, we could do nothing, but this world needs people who bear witness to the hope of God. This, this world needs Jesus followers who are willing to walk in faith and point to a God who is near to the brokenhearted, a God who heals, a God who is with us, a God who is greater than the darkness we face, and a God who will one day come back and make all things new. In the midst of our exile, our confidence is that God is with us, and this hope inspires faithfulness. Now, one last thing that I will say about faithfulness is when Daniel responded in faithfulness, he was seeking the peace and prosperity of the people around him. When he responded in faithfulness, it didn't just grow him, but it actually blessed the people around him. And I imagine it left a legacy that he couldn't even see in that moment. So I'm just going to end with a story. In the mid to late 1700s, there was a man by the name of Friedrich Schwartz. He was a German missionary who felt God call him to India. He was a skilled linguist, and because of his brilliance, he soon found himself employed by the king of the region. 
This was like the 1700s version of Daniel. But he was a German missionary in the middle of a predominantly Hindu culture. Talk about being in a place where the kingdom values were in tension with the culture around you. This was an exilic space for Friedrich Schwartz. But Friedrich knew where his hope was, and that led him to respond in faithfulness, and that happened in some pretty cool ways. Now, one moment where he lived out his faith actually happened away from the Indian court. This moment was in an Indian village, and in that specific village, there were two really evil customs. The first custom was child marriage, the practice of child marriage, where they would actually give infants to each other in marriage. And the second evil practice was the practice that when the husband died, the wife would actually have to throw herself onto her husband's funeral pyre and burn alive. These were wicked, wicked practices. Now, that specific year, there was a young six-year-old girl that was married to a young boy in the village. And unfortunately, the young boy died, and now, as per custom, the little girl faced the reality that she would have to throw herself on her husband's funeral pyre. But this little girl had a brother, and he was not going to let that happen to his little sister. He knew that Frederick Schwartz happened to be staying in the area, so he devised a plan. In the middle of the night, this girl's brother smuggled her out of the village and ran her away to the German missionary. When he reached Frederick Schwartz, he begged him to take her away from the village. And now Frederick faced a choice. He could either do nothing, and he could still have access to serving that village. Or he could take a risk in faith and save this little girl. But he knew that if he took that risk, he would lose access to that whole region of India. But Frederick Schwartz was a man whose hope inspired faithfulness. And so he chose to save this little girl. He took her and escaped in the middle of the night back to the protection of the king. He placed her in an orphanage and where she was raised. And when the time came, she was introduced to Jesus, and Frederick Schwartz was actually able to disciple her to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, sure enough, when the village found out what had happened, Frederick Schwartz lost all access to the region. It was a risk he knew, but it was a risk that played out the way that he thought it would. So Frederick Schwartz lost access to that region. But that's not where the story ends. See, this little girl grew up and she got married again, this time to an Indian guy who was a Jesus follower. And she passed on that story about how God saved her and discipled her children to follow Jesus and discipled her children's children to follow Jesus. This story was passed down from generation to generation, and in each generation there were men and women who decided to follow Jesus. Now remember, when Frederick Schwartz had this decision, he was like, I can risk it and save this girl, but I could lose access to that region. Well, this woman's family, they went back to that region. And this woman's family became musicians and artists and bishops and pastors and teachers. They were leaders of influence, living as Jesus followers in a space where their values were in tension with their culture, living in spaces of exile, seeking the prosperity of that region, but walking faithfully and clinging to God. Now, over 300 years later, that region has been transformed beyond what Schwartz could have imagined, all because in the midst of that exilic space, his hope inspired faithfulness. His hope blessed that girl. His hope changed her life. Now, the cool thing is that this step goes beyond India. In fact, his step of faithfulness didn't just change the life of that girl. 
But his step of faithfulness is because is why I'm here. You see that this girl was not just any other girl. This girl was my grandma's great-grandmother's great-grandmother. Try saying that three times fast. It is because this man, in a time of exile, he said, I have hope, and this hope is going to inspire faithfulness. It is because of this man in exile responding in faithfulness that I get to be following Jesus in Minneapolis. He had no idea what would happen. He had no idea. But his step of faith blessed not only the people around him, but carried on a blessing for generations to come. That is the power of walking in faith. And so this morning, is there a place where God is inviting you to hold on to the reality that God is with you? Is there a place that God is inviting you to walk in faith because of that reality? This world needs people who are walking in faithfulness. Amen?